will be in Psalms 22. The psalmist writes here, he says, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far away from helping me? So far away from the words of my groaning. My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. Also at night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. Our ancestors trusted you. They trusted and you rescued them. They cried to you and were saved. They trusted you and were never disappointed. Yet I am a worm and not a man. I am scorned by humanity and despised by people. All who see me make fun of me. Insults pour from their mouths. They shake their heads and say, Put yourself in the Lord's hand. Let the Lord save you. Let God rescue him since he is pleased with him. Indeed, you are the one who brought me out of the womb, the one who made me feel safe at my mother's breast. I was placed in your care from birth. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. Do not be so far away from me. Trouble is near and there is no one to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls from Basham have encircled me. They have opened their mouths to attack me like ferocious roaring lions. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It it has melted within me. My strength is dried up like pieces of broken pottery. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me down in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A mob has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. People stare. They gloat over me. They divide my clothes among themselves. They throw dice for my clothing. Do not be so far away, O Lord. Come quickly to help me, O my strength. Rescue my soul from the sword, my life from vicious dogs. Save me from the mouth of the lion and from the horns of wild oxen. You have answered me. I will tell my people about your name. I will praise you within the congregation. All who fear the Lord, praise him. All you saints, all you descendants of Jacob, glorify him. Stand in awe of him. All you descendants of Israel. The Lord has not despised or been disgusted with the plight of the oppressed one. He has not hidden his face from that person. The Lord heard when that oppressed person cried out to him for help. My praise comes from you while I am among those assembled for worship. I will fulfill my vows in the presence of those who fear the Lord. Oppressed people will eat until they are full. Those who look to the Lord will praise Him. May you live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and return to the Lord. All the families from all the nations will worship you because the kingdom belongs to the Lord and He rules the nations. All prosperous people on earth will eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust will kneel in front of Him, even those who are barely alive. There will, there will be descendants who serve Him, a generation that will be told about the Lord. They will tell people yet to be born about His righteousness. Then He has finished it. Amen. Into Psalm 22, 
Psalm 22, and as Avery mentioned, uh, threw you a little bit of a curve this morning. So, uh, doing something a little bit different, but still related to our study in Ephesians 5.25, where we're talking there about how Christ's sacrificial love for us, for His church, is a pattern for husbands to love their wives and to set the example of love, of agape, for their families at home. And so husbands uh, needing to learn that so that they can teach that and live that out for their families, that sacrificial love. And so we want to look today at Psalm 22, the extent of sacrificial love. So before we go deeper into our study uh, to um, husbands and how they are to love their wives, I, I want to spend some time examining the glorious depth of Jesus' sacrificial love for us. In Ephesians 5.25, as I said, Jesus is this, the example that Paul sets for us. He lays him out as, this is the one you husbands are to follow as you love your wives. Why do we need Jesus' example of self-sacrificing love? Well, think about this. If we sometimes will make a statement like, life is hard, that's a tragic understatement a lot of times, right? When you think about what we have to go through many times in life, relationships can seem impossible, especially as we talk about husbands and wives, it, it can be seem very difficult at times. Then there's the reality that we pray about our trials, whether they are trials within marriage relationship or family relationships or other relationships, or the broader concept of trials in life. Sometimes it, we don't seem to get answers. We pray and we don't seem to hear what God has to say back and how He provides. So can Christ's example here help us? What I want to do this morning is, it's not going to be a verse-by-verse study of Psalm 22 like we normally do working through the Scriptures. And the the points that I'll be showing you are not hard and fast outline points per se. They're close to the outline of the passage, but... I'm not really wanting to drive home an outline. I want to do a meditation, if you will, to study a study that takes us through Psalm 22 to see what we can learn from this Messianic psalm. Messianic psalm was a, a psalm that prophesies about Messiah ahead of time. It, it, it tells us sometimes in very great detail, as we find here in Psalm 22, about what Christ himself would do, how he would minister, and hear how he will suffer. We learned in Ephesians 5.25, Jesus loved the church and he gave himself up for her. And so, what we're going to see today, what we'll learn in Psalm 22 is that we'll see the depth of Jesus' love. We're going to see the depth of his love and his steadfast confidence in his Father's faithfulness. We're going to see the depth of Jesus' love and the steadfast confidence in his father's faithfulness. As he laments the bitter trials that he faced in those last hours of his life, he rests in God's faithfulness. And so Jesus' example demonstrates to us how to trust in the Lord. 
how can we trust the Lord? How do we trust the Lord while we seek to love others sacrificially? Because loving others sacrificially, I mean, that that word itself, sacrificial, means that it's not going to be easy. In fact, it means it's going to be hard. It's going to hurt. And so we need to know, how do I trust God when I love sacrificially? And Jesus is, he's more than our example. He's our savior. He's the propitiation for our sins. But he is our example. So David penned this lament this psalm, and he faced a time of intense distress, and that prompted him to write this. And he presents his complaints to the Lord in this psalm. That's why we call it a lament psalm, because he's presenting his complaints to the Lord. But he follows it up with his confidence in the Lord. This is a normal pattern for believers. So whenever you suffer, whenever you enter into trials, it is right for you in those times to lament. And David and others teach us how to do that. And so this pattern is normal. You lament, you cry out to the Lord. But that is always followed by confidence in Him. And as we're going to see also, the end of it all is praise. Cry out to the Lord in your grief, then rest confidently in His faithfulness. So the first section we're going to look at, the first ten verses, there's actually going to be uh, two, um, kind of like a little cycle here. You're going to have a lament and then a declaration of confidence. And He's going to do that twice. Okay, He's going to kind of loop through it twice. So let's look at that here. In Psalm 22, what we find in the first ten verses is this, that by faith, believers cry out in confidence to the Lord, even when all seems hopeless. In faith, believers cry out in confidence to the Lord, even when all else seems hopeless. As a prophet, David experienced these things that were are in themselves pointing forward to what Christ would experience. And so part of the reason why David experienced them is to foreshadow what Jesus would endure on the cross. And so he made his complaint to the Lord. Now, when we're talking about lament, the word complaint does not mean complaining. So we're not saying and giving you permission to go and just, you know, complain, complain, complain to the Lord. Not at all. That's not at all what a complaint is. It's a literary term, and it means to bring your petition before the Lord, to cry out before the Lord. There can sometimes be, you know, loud crying and weeping and sometimes wailing and so forth, but it's it you're just pouring your heart out to the Lord. It's a cry of grief or pain. You're seeking God's help when no help is in sight. So let's look at the first complaint. Jesus experienced this in this first complaint in the first two verses. Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh, my God, I cry by day, but thou dost not answer. And by night, but I have no rest. 
God seems to have abandoned him. He's nailed to the cross. And it's like he's there on the cross and, and, and he's looking around. There's no help. And he cries out to his father. As he cries out, my God, my God, he expressed a depth of emotion that shocks us. If you think about it, this is Jesus, God's son, and he's on the cross and, and he's fulfilling God's will and everything that he has done, including this. But yet while he is doing that, he, he senses that my father has abandoned me. There's no help in sight. Why have you forsaken me? But he doesn't stop there. Notice the first declaration of confidence. When God seems silent, believers remember how he has answered in the past. When God seems silent, believers remember how he has answered their prayers in the past. So we're kind of breaking this down a little bit. That's the first ten verses. And here are verses three through five we find the first declaration of confidence. There are times when God seems silent. There are times we pray and we don't seem to receive an answer. And as we're going to see, Jesus cried out on the cross and He didn't receive an answer. Look at verses 3 through 5. So after that pouring out his heart and lament, he says, verse 3, Yet you are holy. O you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel, and you our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you did deliver them. To you they cried out and were delivered. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. So, as, as David is writing this and as Jesus is living this on the cross, at the moment, there doesn't seem to be help coming. But, what they do is they point us like, but look back. God has answered our prayers in the past and He doesn't change. Look back. So when he seems silent, remember how he's answered our prayers. Now, you may wonder, first thing he says there in verse 3, yet you are holy. Like, okay, yeah, I, I, I get that God is holy. I believe that, that sound theology. But what does that have to do with me when I'm crying out and lament? What, it, what does that have to do with me when I don't hear from God? Why would I say you are holy? Well, it's designed to build our confidence. Because what does holiness mean? At its very core, it means He's not like us. He, he, he is wholly other from us. He's not like us. He's not like other gods. How? He answers prayer. You know, and the psalmists, you know, they, they make fun of the, the idols and the, the false gods and say, you know, they can't even hear. They're just made out of wood and stone and stuff. Our God answers prayers. He's not like any of the others. He's faithful to His promises. Now, what does it mean when He talks about God is enthroned on our praises? This is a beautiful word picture here. And what He's saying is that if you, if you were to take all of the answers to prayer, 
that God's people have offered up in, in praise to God, and you take all of those praises for answered prayer, and you put them all together, it, it just builds this enormous throne in heaven that God, that is fit for our God to be enthroned on. And it's a beautiful word picture. Think about it. So sometimes you might, you know, Lord, thank you for answering my prayer. And, and you think, well, you know, there's just a little thing and, and God's probably too busy with other stuff. And but this is how, how God, the Holy Spirit moved David to write this. He was inspired to write this because this is the way God looks at our praises for when he answers our prayers. And so whenever you know, you're in that time of lament and you, you're just like, I, I'm not seeing help. And I've prayed and I've prayed and I've prayed. Then he says, remember the word picture. Because God has answered so many millions and millions and billions of prayers. And His people have thanked God for it. All of those praises together make this beautiful, enormous throne in heaven upon which God sits. And, and it's, a, it's just a word picture to remind us that, oh yeah, that, that's quite a throne because God answered so many prayers. And we need to remember that. Now, he goes back to another complaint. So, his second complaint. When God seems silent, the wicked mock the righteous. When God seems silent, the wicked mock the righteous. Now, one thing I want to say. If you've been through a time of needing to lament, you know that it doesn't work this way. Like, you lament, you cry out to God, and you you trust in Him, and then everything's better. Right? It usually doesn't work that way. Sometimes it does, but a lot of times it doesn't. And so there's another lament and another one and another one sometimes. But each one of them needs to be followed by that confident, that confident declaration, I am trusting in the Lord. So this second complaint, when God seems silent, the wicked mock the righteous. Look at verses 6 through 8. But I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate the lip. They wag their head saying, commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. You remember they said that about Jesus, right? So, you know, you think you're hearing as we go through this so much of it, you hear the Gospels. When we those accounts of Jesus passion of when he died and the suffering and death. And, and you hear it, and so we see that here again. The wicked seek to destroy the faith of the righteous. And they do, when they do that, they treat us like we are worthless. They mock. They scorn. But again, cry out to the Lord, then the confidence. Second round of confidence here that he takes us to. Verses 9 and 10. So believers can look back on a lifetime of God's faithfulness. So, yeah, everybody around you is mocking you. Oh, you trust in God? Where is He? Let God come help you if you're really righteous. But believers look back on a lifetime of God's faithfulness. I just want to read the end of that section. So the end of verse 10. He says to God, You have been my God from my mother's womb. See, remembering this is a powerful defense 
against the mockings by wicked people. You see, remembering. God's been my God my whole life. For as long as I can remember. Now, for some of you, you know, you maybe came to the Lord much later in life, and that's okay. So you just, okay, from that point forward, that whole section of my life, He's been my God. All that time. You see, it's looking back to from the day you trusted in Christ all the way forward. He has been my God. And that is your defense, that confident declaration. Okay, now another complaint. Verses 14 to 18. Believers cry out to the Lord when they are afflicted. Or actually, verses 11 through 18. Believers cry out to the Lord when they are afflicted. I want to read just verses 14 through 18. Again, hear the account of Christ here. You'll recognize many of these words. Psalm 22, verse 14. Jesus said, David said, and Jesus, or David said prophetically, speaking the way Jesus would, or the way he thought, I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. And my tongue cleaves to my jaws. And you, speaking here to God, you lay me in the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Jesus cried out in the midst of such physical weakness because you remember, you know, he'd had that that long trial, those, those last hours of his life where he was, you know, beaten to within an inch of his life, basically, and and carrying his cross as far as he could, and then being nailed to a cross, and, you know, all of that. For David, this was figurative. For Jesus, it was literal. He He felt this physical weakness just completely leave him. Or the, the strength leave him, and it's just it just embodied weakness, intense spiritual oppression. Okay, so while he's suffering, people are mocking him. They're sneering at him. I mean, that's that's the whole point. They put him on a cross on this thoroughfare into the city. They're just outside the city, and so as people come by, walk by, they want everybody to see him hanging there on the cross, so that people can laugh at him and mock him. And that that's the whole point because they want you know don't do what these guys did. It's what the Romans are trying to get across. And Jesus died in our place there, and so he's he's even receiving such spiritual oppression and he was literally drained of energy he's in intense pain i mean just take some time if you've never done that to think about how painful it must have been at one time when i was in college i was in a discipleship program and and uh there were some good things in it, and there were some things like this one where they had us, you know, take a nail and you know just kind of push it into your hand as as hard as you could without actually breaking, you know, the uh, skin, you know, because they wanted you to hurt yourself, you know, and you just kind of get an idea of what it was like for Christ. And I remember telling my disciple, I was like, yeah, that, that's not even close, you know. I mean, you're not even breaking skin. I mean, I get, you know, I wouldn't encourage somebody to do that. 
try to think about, you know, they, they, they cut him and then put nailed and did the same for his, his ankles and, and, you know, and then hanging there and just, I mean, that's like the worst pain. That's why the Romans developed that and they, they and others, you know, developed crucifixion because they wanted it to be the most painful way of dying. He's in that intense pain. And to make it worse, at the end of verse 15, it it seems that God even has a part in taking His life. And you lay me in the dust of death? God had a part in bringing Jesus to the grave. See, there's no answer, and it seems that God is even taking me there to the grave. But again, we don't end with complaint, confidence. The next, the third declaration of confidence, verses 19 to 21, believers pray until God answers. Believers pray until God answers. Verse 19, but you, O Yahweh, be not far off. Oh, you, my help, hasten to my assistance. This is after all the other, right? This is after God doesn't seem to be anywhere around. And He even seems to have a part in bringing me to death. But He's crying out, Deliver my soul, verse 20, from the sword, my only life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. You do answer me. So David poured out his lament. And here, after the third round, apparently God answered him. We don't know exactly what that was. But we're really talking about Jesus here. What about Jesus? He died before an answer came. Do you ever realize that? He cried out to his father and Jesus died before an answer came. Hold that thought. As I said, lament, confidence in the Lord. Did you stand on, you trust in Him and then... Ultimately, it should always lead to praise. And that's what we find for the rest of the psalm, verses 22 to 31. We're not going to go through all of that. But in faith, believers praise their God who answers prayer. In faith, believers praise their God who answers prayer. And so I only want to focus on one verse from this section. I want to show what he's saying here, that God is faithful to answer prayer. Verse 24, speaking about God, For He has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, neither has He hidden His face from Him. But when He cried to Him for help, He heard. We're the ones He's talking about who are the afflicted. God does not despise our afflictions. He doesn't think lightly. He doesn't take them lightly. He doesn't say, okay, well, I know you're going through that. And, well, you know, my son went through worse. So, you know, you know, just kind of buck up there, you know. No, he doesn't take it lightly. He doesn't say, well, you know, that's not that bad. 
No, we're told here clearly God does not think that way about our afflictions. This is a huge encouragement to us. But again, this is talking about Jesus. What about him? Pay close attention to the timing here. Jesus suffered severely. Hateful men succeeded in putting him to death. Yes, he cried out to his father. But then Jesus died. He died before the answer came. Let that sink in. He died before the answer came. And here we keep saying that God answers prayer. He answers the righteous. Did his father fail to answer? Was Jesus' trust in his father misplaced? Turn over to the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 5, section which tells us about Jesus in his humanity. Hebrews chapter 5, read the first part of verse 7. And you'll recognize that this is what we've been talking about here. <clears throat> In the days of His flesh, He offered up, Jesus, He offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save Him from death. Now, when we expand our, our thinking here a little bit, to, it's not just the cross, but let's back up and pick up the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus was praying there in the garden. You remember how he was praying, and, and it was so intense. It was like he was sweating blood drops and his, because his anguish was so deep as he kept praying to the Father. So what we're going to be talking about now is this whole time of his suffering. <clears throat> in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed fervently. He was in extreme anguish because he knew what awaited him. He knew what was coming. And then we have him crying out on the cross, as we saw there in Psalm 22, verse 1. The writer here, the writer of the Hebrews said that Jesus prayed with loud crying and tears. He directed his prayers to the one able to save him from death. But Jesus died. What happened? Was his faith misplaced? In the garden, he was brought face to face with the horror of his passion. He felt its full intensity. Jesus knew that the very next thing to, ha to happen was to have his own father pour out his wrath upon him. A downpour of wrath that was meant for millions and millions of sinners. And in his sufferings, he received a preview of what was in store. He received a foretaste of the cruelty of men. But what the Father was about to do would be far worse and far harder to bear. Imagine the just punishment for all of the elect through all of the ages. Con Concentrated. So you take that enormous body of sin, 
that all of God's people will ever commit. And you concentrate that down now. And in just a few hours, pour it out on Jesus. A downpour of wrath meant for so many of us. God's wrath would fall upon him in wave after wave of divine judgment. To spare his children, Jesus must not be spared. To rescue his sheep, the shepherd must die. Listen to how commentator Philip Hughes explains this horrific time in Jesus' life. And again, he's looking at that from the garden to the cross. But now in the garden, the moment has come in his self-identification with mankind, to plumb human depravity and fallenness to its very depths as he prepares in all his innocence and purity to submit himself in the place of sinners to the fierceness of God's wrath against the sins of men. This meant an experience incomparable in the horror of its torment from which his whole being shrank instinctively but which was inescapable if the purpose of His coming was to be achieved. Imagine the tender, His tender loving Father protecting Jesus throughout His life, protecting Him while He was in His mother's womb, protecting Him when He was a baby, protecting Him when He was a toddler, a little boy, teenager, and a young man. And now that very Father steps aside to leave Jesus alone on the cross. Oh, depth of mercy. Depth of love. And when that happened, Jesus cried, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The Father went from strong protector to holy judge. He poured out on His Son His fierce wrath. Jerry Bridges wrote in The Transforming Power of the Gospel, What did the Father do to His sinless Son? The answer is shocking. He made Him to be sin. This seemingly strange expression of Paul is His way of saying that Jesus was made to be all that which is abominable and hateful to God, all that which is the object of His holy and just wrath. As our substitute, He was made to be the embodiment of all our rebellion, all our lawlessness, all of our despising of God and His law. That's what Jesus was facing. But what about the question we asked earlier? Did the Father fail to answer Jesus' loud crying for deliverance? He cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But his father remained silent. And as I said, Jesus died before any answer came. Did God fail him? Look again, Hebrews 5, 7. In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard. He was heard. It doesn't look like that. He went all the way to death 
without hearing an answer. But the writer here, and again, it's the same Holy Spirit moving this man to write this as he moved David to write Psalm 22. He says, Jesus was heard. Well, how, how, how could he say that, John? How could he say that, Mr. Hebrews? You know how, he, how we know Jesus was heard? God raised him from the dead. God seated him at the place of highest honor at God's right hand. He was heard. Let me suggest to you that this is an issue of timing. To God, death is merely a mile marker, not the end of the road. See, we look at death as the end of the road. Okay, Jesus prayed and he died. God hadn't answered him. Okay, God failed. We look at, okay, I've been praying and praying and praying and then I die. And I didn't get an answer. God failed, right? No. Because for God, death is just a mile marker. You look, you picture it like a, a road, a long highway. And for God, just death's, you know, over here and there's still a long high, lot of highway to go. You know, we always look at it you know, as that final stop sign, end of the road, you know, it drops off a cliff. Not for God, it's just a mile marker. It's like when you're driving down the highway and see mile 42 or whatever, you know. that's To God, that's all death is. And it's nothing for Him. It's not even a speed bump. Right? But this is the hard part for us, isn't it? We suffer intensely and we cry out to God. No answer. We pray. No answer. We plead. No answer. We might die with no answer. Has God failed us? Has God failed us? No. Just as Jesus was heard, so shall we be heard. In his commentary on Psalm 22, Alan Ross declared that because the Father abandoned Him, Jesus, who died in our place, He will never abandon us who have come to faith in Him. Isn't that beautiful? That's what we need to take away. Again, for a time, not permanently. He didn't abandon Jesus permanently. And that's why Ross puts that in, in quotes like that. It was just temporary. It was just, you know, three days. Not even that. And so because he, he abandoned Jesus, it means we will never be abandoned by Him. Brother and sister... For all of you who have trusted in Christ, and those of you who haven't, listen, because you need to hear this to know what you could have in Christ. The very worst case scenario for you or me is that the answer won't come until glory. That's the worst case. Sometimes he answers us before then. But sometimes he doesn't. And we call it worst case scenario because, you know, it sounds kind of bad. But what we're saying is if the worst is not so bad, and I'm going to show you that it's 
It's even better than that. Anything short of that, if you will, is still wonderful. So the worst case scenario is that the answer will not come until glory. But oh, what an answer it will be. What kind of an answer? You'll have a glorified body that won't grow old. Old people, amen, right? All of us, right? Young people, you'll get there. A glorified body that won't get sick. This is almost one of the best parts. No more sin. In my heart or yours. Oh, what an answer. No more opposition. No more oppression. Perfect fellowship with God. Beholding the Lamb. I mean, to be there and actually see Him with your eyes. The One who loved you. Who gave Himself for you. The One we talked about here from Hebrews 5 and and Psalm 22 and all the Gospels. And to be able to just see Him. And you see Him at a distance and you're talking with your brother or sister in Christ. And you say, there's the One that loved me. There's the One who died for me. And you see him up close and you get to see the scars because, as I've said before, as far as I can tell, he's the only one that's going to have scars in heaven. You know, God chose to keep his glorified body, keep the scars with it because they tell of his love. They declare what we're trying to say here, the extent of his love. What an answer. That it will be, get to walk with Jesus, to love Him, to bask in His glory. That's the worst case scenario, folks. Right? Oh, how wonderful that will be. Let me bring this back around to Paul's discussion of family in Ephesians 5 and 6. So how do you, O wife, respond when your husband doesn't lead well or leads badly or doesn't lead at all and you pray and you don't get an answer how do you handle that how do you handle it oh husband when your wife won't follow or when she kicks back when you try to lead young people how do you respond when your parents sin against you parents how do you respond when Your children bring you intense pain and grief. Let's broaden this to all of us. What do you do when you suffer physical ailments? All sorts of hardships, opposition, oppression, intense grief, lingering pain. Cry out to the one who's able to deliver you, He will answer. There's one more phrase as we come to the Lord's table. One more phrase in Hebrews 5-7 that I hadn't talked about yet. It says that Jesus was heard. And He was heard because of His piety, or better, because of His devotion to God's will. That's why he was heard. Remember, in his humanity there on the cross, hope was nowhere in sight. But he endured the suffering 
as God's will. God sent him here to do that. And he was devoted to God's will. He was devoted to carrying it out regardless of the cost. He endured. And so as we are here gathered around the table, let us meditate on Jesus' devotion to God's will. Even when it seemed hopeless. Because think about when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And his father seemed nowhere around. And in fact, his father had had to step away from him. Because he made his son to be sin, to take our sin and to take that punishment. And in that same moment, it was his devotion to God's will. But Hebrews 12 also gives us another beautiful phrase. It was because of the joy set before him that he endured the cross and despised the shame. The joy set before him. What was that? I'm going to secure the salvation of all of my people. They will be a gift to me from my father and they will be my bride. And through my sacrifice, I am going to make them holy and blameless. You see how this all ties in? Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her.